Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Aisa. Uh, and this is a special Valentine's Day episode <laughs> where we'll be talking about um, our favorite uh, romantic films of all time. Um, I was very briefly considering doing like a very cynical kind of podcast, it being like an anti-Valentine's Day <laughs> theme instead of a Valentine's Day theme, you know. Um, uh, like Midsommar was one I was thinking of, <laughs> Valentine, of course, um, yeah. the Revolutionary Road, um, stuff like that, you know. But I figured, you know, we could we could go with the cynical route next year. Like, let's go for the positive yeah. route first. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, just, a, just a hits up, guys. Like, if you want a Valentine's Day movie to watch, I would rather you watch any of the things we're talking about today and not Blue Valentine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> amazing performances from Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think it might be Gosling's like one of his best performances, but yeah, do, don't watch. Yeah, that please don't watch that. Like I, I uh, personally know a couple that went to watch that for Valentine's Day, and it Ooh. was not a good idea. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Revolutionary Road uh, famously reunites a Titanic couple Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio for mm-hmm. an incredible like breakup movie. Uh, they play a married couple on the verge of you know ending things. Yeah. Uh, it's actually quite fantastic and you know it, it sort of makes me imagine like what if they had survived and gotten together. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean um it's one of those things, right? Like all of these uh the cynical Valentine's Day stuff that we want to talk about. And I, I guess Eternal Sunshine kind of falls into that in in a mm. in a kind of bittersweet way. Uh, but they are excellent, excellent performances and excellent movies as well. We should definitely yeah. pick that up next year. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do the cynical one next year. But let's start with, start with the positives. We'll be talking about this week uh, a couple of, actually three really, really famous movies. So I don't think I need to do much of an introduction for them. Yeah. You know, um, the first thing we'll be talking about is the Before Trilogy uh, by Richard Linklater starring Julie Delpley and uh, Ethan Hawke. Uh, it, it's uh, made out of three films, uh, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. And it kind of captures this little minuscule uh, microcosmic um, snapshots of a maturing relationship at different points uh, of the relationship, uh, which mm-hmm. I thought was fascinating. Uh, secondly, we'll be talking about uh, Charlie Kaufman's and Michelle Gondry's uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, which, you know... Um, a lot of people our age uh, consider <laughs> it um, a classic. Um, yeah. c- certainly one of, um, I guess, Charlie Kaufman's most accessible films. You know, if oh, his yeah. latest film is his most inaccessible film, <laughs> this will be his most accessible film yeah. uh, by far. Sure. Uh, then we'll be talking about um, a really cool little uh, indie romantic comedy called The Big Sick mm-hmm. uh, by Kumail Nanjiani and Emily B. Gordon. Uh, it's... In my opinion, one of the, the best rom-com of the 21st century, uh, at, at least of the last 10 years that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, and it's particularly notable because the story is true. Uh, it's a story about uh, Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, mm-hmm. uh, Emily B. Gordon, who are, both of them wrote the film. Uh, lastly, we'll be talking about probably, I think, the most iconic love triangle in cinematic <laughs> history. Uh, might even be the first romantic uh, love triangle in cinematic history. I don't, I don't know. This was way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about <laughs> Casablanca. Uh, we'll always have Paris, you know, a lot of quotable lines from that mm. one. 
Uh, but yeah, but let's begin with the Before Trilogy, as I mentioned, written and directed by Richard Linklater, starring Ethan Hawke and Judy Delpley. Uh, it started with the 1995 film Before Sunrise, mm. and then followed up with the 2004 film Before Sunset, and most recently, the 2013 film Before Midnight. Um, now let's, before we have, we kind of have like this very hindsight is 2020 perspective on the before trilogy, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, at the time that it was made, um, the filmmakers and audiences and fans had no idea that there will be a sequel, let alone, you know, a trilogy, you know? Yeah. Um, so my question to you is, you know, as I, whenever I talk to anyone who's a fan of the trilogy, I always ask, what was the first film you saw? Uh, of the trilogy, and did, did you expect there to be a sequel from it? Um, the first film that I saw was um, the first film, like Before Sunrise was the first film that I saw. Uh, uh, when do you see it, and how do you see it? Uh, I think I watched, watched it with an ex-girlfriend, um, mm. from what I remember, right? The first time I saw that, uh, I at that point in time when I saw it, the second film was already out, right? Mm. Uh, and it had been out for maybe about a year, so like I I do remember like kind of seeing the the posters being out and stuff like that. Uh, but it was highly recommended, or rather, I was uh, coerced into making sure that I saw um before sunrise first before we watch before uh sunset sunset yeah. So uh, so I'm guessing this was probably two thousand and five, so maybe ten years actually after the the original movie released. Mm, interesting. Um, I first watched Before Sunrise in, I'm going to say 1999 or 98 because I watched it on VHS. Uh, VCR. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it, it was around that time. It had to be in the late 90s if, if it was VHS, right? Yeah, for sure. C- it couldn't have been 2000. So I caught it like maybe a few years after Before Sunrise had been released mm-hmm. and about, I would say, five to six years before Sunset came out in cinemas. So one thing that like I wanted to point out in terms of my experience of Before Sunset was that I had at least, you know, this this gap, you know, this five, six, not not exactly the nine-year gap like, that yeah. was fans had, yeah. but I had this gap to anticipate and then, you know, like the the, the first meeting in Before Sunset, you know, <laughs> the, the feeling of, you know, waiting so long to see this, the goosebumps and everything. I'm assuming you didn't have that, like, considering you watched them back to back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did have kind of a similar feeling with Before Midnight, right? Like, there was no news about that. If anything, the third installment of the trilogy was the most surprising for me. Mm. Um, because, like, I, I feel like the first two movies were very uh, complete in that sense, right? Like, uh, for the first one, after they've made their promise, second one, they fulfilled that promise. Uh, so, Midnight was the one that kind of caught me off guard when they announced that it was being made, right? Mm. So, that's, um, that was, what, seven years, right? Nine. Uh, there are nine-year intervals between yeah. each. So nine year, yeah, nine years after I watched um, um, Sunset. Mm. So uh, I don't, I, yeah. So I didn't exactly have like the same kind of like journey you did uh, with the mm. first and second movie, uh, but with the third movie, I'm guessing it was kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, if, if you haven't seen the film, um, it follows uh, Jesse and Celine, played by Hawk and Delphi, uh, respectively, who meet on a train to Paris. Uh, mm. And when they arrive at his stop in Vienna, he asks Celine to get off the train with him. Um, <laughs> after all, he asks, you know, when she's an old woman daydreaming about, you know, the man who wandered in and out of her life, her future self will wish she had gone with him. Um, perhaps the before midnight version of Celine might have regretted this. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Celine's decision to get off the train, of course, kicks off this this great love story uh, spread out over um, 18 years. Um, yeah. uh, Link Latter 
famously, you know, um, likes to put uh, these three films almost, I mean, not quite real time, but almost real time, you know, following yeah. a single interaction between both of them. The first film, certainly not real time, but it takes place over the course of one night. Second film is definitely real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, third film takes place over a couple of days. So what's yeah. interesting about Before Sunrise is that uh, you get to see the maturation of this relationship and how the interactions uh, uh, divulge and uh, differ uh, mm-hmm. depending on what stage they are in their lives. Before Sunset was unabashedly romantic, very positive, very yeah. um, uh, very, very optimistic. Right? You know, it, it follows two young people uh, still describing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe their conversations sometimes were smart, sometimes were cringy. You know, they, they haven't had full experience of maturity yet. Uh, before sunset, you know, we find out that uh, Celine did not return uh, to the train station as they had promised at the end. Yeah. Uh, and instead wrote a book about <laughs> um, about their first encounter. Um, Ethan Hawke's character, uh, not quite confronts her, but like realizes that she's doing a, a, a book signing. Uh, yeah. So decides to go and see her. Uh, and then that kicks off, you know, this... Uh, but the second film, which takes place in real time, where they reconnect uh, maybe... Uh, Fresh out their frustrations at, at each other. Mm. Why one didn't, you know, uh, fulfill the promise, and why why one did. The third one follows them as a married couple, older in life, fully yeah. matured, maybe now filled with the bitterness and resentment of 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 a long life, like, You know, yeah. they, they still clearly love each other, mm-hmm. but the 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 tone of the third film is is very very different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Uh, we, we, which which of these are are, are your favorite? I I think Sunrise was definitely stands out the most, uh, in in terms of like the way it sets up everything, you know. Uh, w- without Sunrise, you don't have the other two films, right? Mm-hmm. And like in my mind, it impacts me more. But in terms of like overall in the trilogy itself, some of the scenes in Midnight are extremely memorable and very very powerful. I think the argument that they have in the hotel room. Mm. Uh, in the third act of, of the movie is one of the most like realistic arguments I've ever seen a couple have uh, honestly and that struck a lot of chords for me mm-hmm. um, yeah so like if I had to rank I, I think it was first third and, and second movie Nice, yeah. Uh, my favorite is actually the second film, and mm-hmm. then you know, first and then third. I think the second one, um, I was impacted by it because of the weight, uh, because of you know that that first moment of interaction when Celine sees um Jesse in the bookstore. Yeah. Uh, that had been like such you know a, a long time in the making. It was great. Uh, yeah. I I think a big part of why I enjoyed the second film so much was was the weight like, that that I feel like a lot of people who are fans of this trilogy didn't have to. Yeah. Um, it, it was a surprising like, and, and, and in, in totality though, all three films are actually quite outstanding um, mm. very few flaws to each of them um, the first one to be honest is probably the strongest of the film if I'm to be talking yep. objectively yeah. because he has a um, it's a complete story with a perfect ending a perfectly ambiguous ending which if they had made no sequels to it would have st- still stood the test of time yeah yeah, I, I think so I think so I, I do know a couple of people who only watched the first one with no knowledge that like the second or the third one exists, uh, you mm. know, and in their mind, like it's a great movie. Mm. Uh, so the question then becomes like, uh, given how great <clears throat> uh, Sunset was, mm. right? Uh, was there a need to make uh, Sunrise and Midnight? Um, of course, you know, like there's never a need to make a sequel, uh, but seeing the trajectory of the relationship um, and seeing what like 
Richard Linklater and and uh, Julie and Ethan had done with it. I I, I think they co-wrote Midnight together, which was uh, different from Sunrise and Sunset. Um, that this decision to explore different stages of re- of a re- relationship, yeah, uh, and and different, you know, how people perceive love at different stages of their life, you know, from um young, from basically young adults to adults to mm-hmm. to um middle age, you know, uh, was very interesting. Uh, and I think made it a very necessary choice. Like, un- admittedly, I did not see it as necessary at first, but after seeing Midnight, I, I found it necessary, and I wouldn't mind because like. 2022, which is nine years after 2013, you know, I would yeah. mind if they do if they do another one. Yeah, I think that would be fairly interesting, right? Like the way kind of like midnight ends off in, in the golden years, so to say, of their relationship. It would mm. be really kind of fascinating to to see kind of like where they go with the characters, right? I feel like a lot of it also has to do with the fact that we follow the same actors throughout this 18 year period. Mm. Uh, it allows and, them a time to age, like, yeah. Yeah, it, it allows them time to age, but also in between, they they start to accumulate like a really interesting body of work. At least Ethan Hawke has done like a fair bit um, mm. during the eighteen years in in between the films, mm. uh, and I, I I feel like that kind of shows up in the in the acting um, mm. as they kind of get older as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree la. Like, um, Sunrise, as I mentioned, is a very optimistic film, and Sunset is a bit um sadder. Yeah. Uh, it it kind of lets the pair effortlessly kind of fall back into the rhythm of their conversation, awkwardly at first and easily later. Um, even as kind of the, the the pain of the years they spent apart deepens, and and they slowly reveal the ways that their night together nine years ago has changed and shaped them. Mm. Um, I I think like the fiery passion of Sunrise is still present there. It's just Tinged in uh, pain and yearning, la. and and the the promise of the final moments of the f- of the first films is one of the most perfect endings ever put together. Yeah. Uh, but you know, exploring what happens after that is also interesting. And I think before midnight also finds new ways to chart the growth for Jesse and Celine, even um, as it explores the the consequences and and rewards of the life that they've built together in the years since sunset. You know, the heated romantic tension of the first two films mm-hmm. definitely cooled by now. But, <laughs> But Hawk and and Delpy are, are are more watchable than ever in many ways, and their exchanges are rier and funnier because they know each other better. <laughs> yeah. Um. And as 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 you pointed out, you know that the film builds to this blistering extended argument between the two, one that wisely allows both characters to be, I think, right and wrong in equal measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linklater is a specialist in naturalistic conversational dialogue yeah um a bit um a bit more stylized than Noah Bombok but way less didactic than Aaron Sorkin <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um this is how I would de- describe it you know um but it, it's an incredible achievement la, to to do this kind of very small low-key low stakes mm. uh film uh, and have it be as memorable as they are. I think one of the one of the main reasons that before the before trilogy is so memorable is is the dialogue. You know, it's mm. it's it's highly dialogue driven throughout all three films. You know, what what, yeah. what do you think about the the writing and the dialogue and how it's executed by the actors? Uh, I I think like dialogue features the most heavily as the as the trilogy goes along. Right. Um. Mm. There is. Uh, I'm all. All, all three shows are, are set in, in, in incredibly picturesque locations, right? Like you got Vienna, you got Paris, and then you have you know some island, uh, some village in Greece. Mm. Um, but I feel that there is a lot more to kind of carry um, 
the plot or, or the story as it is for the first movie than there is in the third movie. Like when we boil down to it, um, you know, it it follows the course of, of the conversation, right? If over the 18 years that they are essentially having throughout this entire time, right? Like this is um when he asks you, you know, you're like, you're gonna regret this, right? Not coming with me. And then like 18 years later, you know, it's kind of like the answer that we get to that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like dialogue features more heavily and becomes more important as the movies go along. Uh, mm-hmm. So much so that at the end of the day, um, at the end of midnight, in fact, uh, you know, it is the it is entirely just conversation. It's two people having conversation. They're not going around. They're not, you know, you're being uh, talking to random poets in a boat. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, 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 they're not like interacting with people on a bridge or anything of the sort. Um, mm. So like, it's so natural and so um interesting that most of the time you forget that at the end of the day you know like it is really just one extended conversation over the course of the trilogy mm-hmm. uh, but the other features around it seem to diminish in importance or even diminish in an amount of screen time that it has uh mm-hmm. when we hit midnight yeah yeah uh, crazy enough actually midnight has for biggest, um, I wouldn't say ensemble, but the biggest cast of supporting characters of any of the films. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they're, they're staying with other people. They're having this big dinner conversations with a bunch of, you know, other people. Stuff mm-hmm. that we never had in, in Sunset and Sunrise. But it yeah. actually feels a lot more personal and a yeah. lot deeper because it's, cu- it's kind of, it's cutting to the truth of, of, of their tension. Yeah. Uh, you know, like they still clearly, like, love each other. But, you know, there are realities to... Uh, to a relationship, like you know, uh, mm-hmm. resent- resentment build up, <laughs> bitterness builds up. You know, the 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 crackling uncertainty of before sunrise is completely gone to a certainness. You know that they know yeah. each other so well, they can poke and prod at each other's like you know weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, their their mutual attraction is still there. Um, yeah. I love the ending to Before Midnight also, you know. Um, mm. I mean, even past the conversation, even as <laughs> Jesse tri- tries to reconcile, you know, tries to s- strike up this very meat, uh, uh, fake meat cute again, you know, and Je- Selene's not having it. Yeah. It's it's really cool, you know, and, and there's, there's no twist, there's no kind of pl- quote-unquote plot to mm. get in the way, you know. It's very character-driven cinema, which as I grow older, like, I've, I seem to prefer more to plot-driven cinema. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, I, I, I think it's just uh, people who are fans of the trilogy as a whole, I think by and large, like uh like like we are uh, recognize how real um mm. the relationship that is captured is, right? Every movie discusses a very different stage of what uh, a, a real life relationship would look like. You mm. know. Um and for the people who have been in relationships and m- can see a mirror of themselves in the characters like that just further cements how great the trilogy as a whole is mm-hmm. um yeah so i mean like that's very little to complain about you know like just in terms of you know the writing the way that it's shot you know the pacing across the 18 years i'm just very curious to know what someone who's never watched the trilogy before and decides to watch it back to back um, would they have a difference of opinion, right? Like, we've already talked about the fact that you had to wait before um, um, Sunrise came out, you mm. know, and uh, we both had to wait before Midnight came out. And that kind mm. of, like, framed the context in which we view the films, right? Because mm. with that time that time skip, so to say, right, uh, we we grow in as well. Mm. You know, Along, Alongside the characters? Alongside the characters, you know, it informs our understanding of what happened before and what's happening to them now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting, I think, if we 
I don't know. Do we have someone who has never watched that? I would love to try an experiment. Oh, I think Isa has never seen the Before Trilogy. Yeah. Uh, I always make fun of him because, you know, he he seems like the type that would be a fan of this. But yeah. he's actually never seen it, which is which is very interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting thought experiment because I feel that when I was watching Before Sunrise, I wasn't, you know, I was young, much younger. And I think mm. how old I was 13, 14, 15, around that age, you know. Yeah. So I think I was thinking with the same thought processes as Jesse and Celine at that time. You know, I thought what they were saying was so smart, was so clever, you know. <laughs> and then as I reached, like, young adulthood, you know, you sort, you sort of realize how kind of corny some of their, like, you know, pickup lines were yep. and stuff like that, yep. you know. It, it was more real, a bit more cynical, a bit sadder, a bit, but also a bit more um, truthful uh, because you know what life is now. Yeah. Uh, I have yet to reach the stage of Before Midnight, so I can't quite <laughs> say how, how realistic that is, but yeah. I, it, it feels realistic, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I do wonder what these kinds of movies would look like in the modern day, you know, like if they had met on Tinder or something. Yeah. I mean, like, it's it's an absolutely uh, different kind of frame of reference, right? Like if um, someone did a remake of this, it would actually, I think, would be interesting. Yeah. I don't know if, if like, say, for example, it becomes a Tinder movie, right? Or at least Sunrise becomes a Tinder movie. Mm. Or Sun... Yeah, Sunrise becomes a Tinder movie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if a relationship like that necessarily would be able to span the eighteen years, mm. right? Like, I I don't know if that it would it would most likely end up like anything that we get on Netflix these days, mm. um, you know. And like the and I think so much of it has so much of the strength of this has to do with the time skips, the nine year gaps, mm. uh, more so than say like like Boyhood, right? So Boyhood. You know, we follow along uh, um, the kids' journey throughout everything. Uh, for those that don't know, Boyhood was an, another movie made by Ling Later. Um, that spent over four, fourteen years, right? Fourteen years, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that didn't quite have the same impact, right? Because I didn't go through the fourteen years. I I watched it in ninety minutes, you know, yeah, or, or, or whatever the runtime was, like. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think you know it would have the same impact. Uh, just because modern dating is. I feel at least right in comparison to what we see in the in the trilogy is a lot more um it, it focuses around the convenience of having these platforms right to facilitate communication to facilitate meetups and all of that mm. you know uh, many of them are one off a lot of it is about you know throwing throwing your net into the sea and seeing how many fish you can catch mm. um so I don't know if it will work it would be an interesting uh, endeavor for sure right to yeah. see if like um, the way technology has essentially changed um, the way we meet people mm-hmm. uh, would, you know, um, give us uh, uh, something similar or something totally different. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I could even imagine like a fourth before film taking place, you know, during COVID over Zoom, you know, um, like they're divorced and, you know, they're yeah. having, like maybe Ethan is like checking up on, his, on their kids or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, that would be interesting too. But like the the reason I ask that question is because I feel like the before films couldn't have taken place at any other time than the times um, that they were made, lah. Yeah, know? yeah. Like it wouldn't have been as successful now, mm-hmm. for sure, or or before, like They they are entirely products of the time. Absolutely. 
Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, uh, yeah. So I I find it hard to to think of it in in any other scenario, uh, you know, or in a, in a in another setting. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. But you know, the globe trotting nature of it makes it very difficult to be filming now if they want to release a a second um a fourth one in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we are yeah. due, right? So twenty twenty two would be the nine years. Yeah. After twenty thirteen, correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what. You know, if Ling Leta has something up his sleeve, it would be yeah. it would be really interesting to see what a relationship like that looks like in the times we live in right now, right? Like mm-hmm. with, with isolation, with the pandemic, you know. Um uh even I mean, even just talking about technology itself in the course of the three movies, right? Like we don't have handphones in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh and, and uh in midnight, they're on their phones a fair bit, actually. Uh, yeah, here and yeah. there while they're having their discussions and all of that. And it's super interesting to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll see. Uh, we don't have any word of it yet, right? No, no. But, you know, they usually come together and write it and shoot it over the course of a couple of months. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very quick process, you know. So they could get together next year, you know. It may be COVID is over, who knows, you know. And they could do another one. Uh, one can hope. Mm. Uh, there, there's always room for the before um, franchise, I would say, to to further expand because you know uh, they could explore different they could always explore different facets your life continues to change you know yeah absolutely you know uh, your your perceptions of romantic love continues to change as you grow older and it will never stop happening like change mm. is i guess the, the one constant and which what which is what makes this relationship so very human and so very relatable uh to audiences which is in why it's also so memorable yeah agreed and and also of course you know like it, w- it wouldn't work with, without the writing of Ling Letter, without the chemistry of mm. Hawk and Delphi, you know. Um, they, 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 I think they know these people inside out to the point <laughs> where it's, 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 it's so easy to write a new dialogue-driven uh, script for, for a new one, uh, you know. It's just, yeah. let's get in character and, and, and write at each other, you know. <laughs> yeah. I would love to see that. I really, really would. Um, just to see, like, how distant changes the dialogue. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um fascinating. Like what are your like favorite um moments or scenes from from the, the three films? Oh wow. Um I, I think we've talked about a couple of them. Uh I, I think um Ethan Hawke's speech to Delpy in the train is one of the greatest pickup lines in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. Uh um at the point in time when I was watching it, I was just like, wow, this guy's got game. And then like on subsequent watches, I'm just like, uh, sketchy. So yeah, sketchy. Is it, yeah. yeah. As you grow older, you realize how sketchy it is. <laughs> it was yeah. so sketchy. Uh, you know, I, I think um, the moment that they had with the poet by the waterside is very memorable mm. to me. Um, like you've brought up uh, in the second movie when he walks into the bookstore, that was a very powerful scene for mm-hmm. me. And then from midnight... Um, the extended argument and of course kind of the closing on the bench out, uh, by the river yeah, uh, were, were the two things that stood out to me the most. I mean, like, they had some incredible dialogue over the dinner table mm-hmm. and in the car as well, but like, those two specifically were just like, outstanding. Indeed, indeed, you know. Um, yeah, the, those final moments of Before Me and I actually feel of the height of the trilogy, which mm. is strange to say, like, you know, uh, um, a trilogy that gets stronger with every movie, but the richness of depth uh, and the richness of feeling that we feel through those conversations at the end of Before Midnight had to be built upon, you know, yeah. what happened in, in Sunrise and yeah. Sunset. Lah. You know, um, it's it's great. Uh, my favourite 
though, I, I mean, aside from all the things you've already mentioned, mm. I think it was that time when you went to the record store and then oh. listening to uh calf blooms come here yeah the, the you know but trying to look at each other but not looking at each other moment was mm. very was very very well done very very cute yeah yeah i i really like that i mean like that's one of the that's one of the uh moments that people point to the most man right mm. yeah uh so many memorable moments, so many quotable quotes, and I think that's kind of true of almost everything. Um, of, well, the three big movies, at least, that we're going to be dis- that we're discussing on this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, quotable quotes and all of that. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's possible, right? I, okay, do you think it's possible to watch any of the trilogy uh, on its own, with the exception of the first movie, right? Could you watch Sunrise? A sunset without having watched Sunrise. Um, I know a few people who watch Sunset without watching Sunrise. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Midnight is yeah possible, but you won't get the full depth of it. Yeah, agree, agree. Yeah, I, I think it's like incredibly difficult to to get the full experience without having it build upon one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, man. Um, let's let's move on to an equally kind of iconic film among, um, I would say millennials and Gen Xs. Yeah. Um, people of that age. Um, I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the two thousand four sci fi film by Charlie Kaufman, uh, directed by Michelle Gondry. Uh, it follows you know this ex- estranged couple who have erased each other's memories. Mm. Um, um, one of the couple is uh Jim Carrey in one of his rare dramatic performances, and the other is Kate Winslet. Uh, and this employs, you know, elements of a psychological thriller, uh, a non-linear mystery-driven narrative, mm-hmm. kind of, to explore the nature of memory and romantic love. You know, um, from how I described it, you might think that it's a very kind of challenging, obtuse, um, <laughs> uh, Nolan-esque, uh, memento-ish kind of kind of film, but it really isn't. You know, yeah. if if you know, I'm thinking of ending things as I mentioned is is no is is Kaufman's <laughs> most challenging film. Yeah, this is probably a, his most romantic and accessible, uh, easy to watch film. You know, yeah. there, there, it is very high concept. Um, a lot of the cinematography and the writing tricks are also very high concept. You know, mm-hmm. but it's done so elegantly and with such a feeling, uh, and so really relatable. You know, the idea of trying to recapture something uh moments that are, they are lost mm-hmm. that it's so easy to understand despite you know the very high concept sci-fi nature of it yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, um since this was your pick you know like what do you love about uh, uh eternal sunshine on the spotless mind um okay so just for kind of context um i had a i had a friend bring me to watch eternal sunshine uh, at that point mm-hmm. in time i don't think i was very big into to indie anything, really, uh, as far as cinema goes. So Eternal Sunshine was probably one of the first times that I went in um, to start enjoying, you know, a movie like this. Uh, And of course, like, as it goes, I had a huge crush on this girl uh, at that point in time. So it's it's especially kind of, like, uh, special to me because of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in, in conjunction to that, for some reason, I think... In my early twenties, I started this. I started this thing that every Valentine's Day I will watch Eternal Sunshine, just because the opening line mentions Valentine's Day, right? Yeah, yeah. The first scene takes place during Valentine's Day. Yeah, uh, you know, and I always thought like, you know, this is one of my favorite films, and I'm I'm I make it a point to watch it once a year. 
Um, I think what was interesting to me that uh, at the point in time when I watched it for the first time, right, there is a slight kind of twist. There's a bit of a mystery that you you kind of figure out and unpack until you reach the third act of the movie uh, itself. Uh, you know, and um, just the way in which Kaufman has crafted this, combined with the fact that Gondry at the time was maybe felt a bit more free um, <laughs> to to kind of like do what he wanted to do. Um, just made it, uh, gave this extremely magical kind of ethereal feeling to to a very complex um, love story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that um, surprised me and made me extremely fond of this movie just because of the way that it was executed. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that you say that it's complex because it is in structure. Yeah. But the actual love story is not, which yeah. is what makes it, you know, very relatable. Yeah. So the, this this story told in reverse trope has become a very common <laughs> device in film. Yeah. Um. To to the point where it's kind of lost its novelty already. But you know, uh, Eternal Sunshine doesn't utilize this device to conceal information from the audience. It's not a cheat in that way. Mm. Kaufman and Gondry use it to a different end uh, in, to, to show you how uncovering uh, forgotten emotions, not hidden facts, forgotten emotions mm. uh, can, can affect you. You know, There are no unexpected twists or sudden revelations about yeah. Joe and Clementine. It's just a wistful, a wistful backward view of love's decay. You know? yeah. um, it's it's kind of unlike Kaufman's previous work at the time, like like uh, being John Malkovich, I that mentioned, it's <laughs> it's not out to kind of stun us with the originality of the gimmicks. Yeah. Um. The, although the, you know this film is fairly original, but it it rather wants us to to wind back to earnest familiarity of of its uh, of its sentiment. Uh, you know, the yeah. idea that all relationships end on a bad note. Clearly, la, as mm. um as Doctor Manhattan says, you know, all relationships end in in tragedy by definition. Yeah. Um. But you tend to remember only the end of it, uh, and you want to forget everything to kind of erase the pain of of the end of relationship, right? So mm-hmm. you only you only remember the bad parts of it. Uh, the the trick of the film is to use this device to take us through the bad parts and then back, back, back to the good parts to yeah. remind you that you know it's not everything is as as bad as it seems. Like, there were good moments, there were bad moments, of course. Like, mm-hmm. But you have to take both of them. You know, that's the real definition of a relationship. Like, you, know? yeah. you, you take the good with the bad. Um, also, I really enjoyed Eternal Sunshine or The Spotless Night. Because at the time, I think you know, this was 2004, right? E- yes, 2004. That's right. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know whether you were aware of this whole trope back in the uh, mid-2000s to early 2000s. This whole like depressed... Uh, with the um, male guy introverted uh, yeah. meets the manic pixie dream goal. Yeah, so it's the sad uh, boy, sad, uh, sad boy, manic pixie sad boy, manic pixie uh, dream dream goal kind of kind of kind of trope, right? Yeah. Um, this, you know, this film it starts out following that trope, you know, of a five hundred days or summer trope or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but the film's fascinating conjecture is that the manic pixie dream goal and indie hero are probably uh, crackled by the, their, their opposing creative energies at first, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that is the, the spark of the attraction. But the film goes on to reveal that 
they probably aren't very well suited for each other. Yeah. You know, um, not because either one is a villain, but because of like basic incompatibility. La. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet again and again, they choose to, to give this romance a shot anyway, you know, as is the, the surprise ending of the film. Like, you know, they, mm. they, memories are erased, they meet each other for the first time, we're going to give it a shot again. It's bittersweet <laughs> in a sense because, you know, hey, you know, like they, they really have this internal depth of feeling that transcends you know uh rational memory like yeah. they, they re- like you know you could say that they belong together mm-hmm. but in the end it's also tragic because you know it's going to end badly again yeah um <laughs> great yeah I, I i love that kind of very sly very subtle dissection of that trope of those two tropes mm-hmm. 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 yeah i think as i get older i i become more and more fond of films a high concept films who use the medium to convey the concept right um, and the way kind of like Eternal Sunshine is uh, shot, especially the large portion, a lot of the middle portions of the film, mm-hmm. uh, they're all shot in kind of these vignettes, right? So in a film that's talking about kind of like memory, uh, you know, and 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 all these like kind of other dreamscapes that you kind of wander through within your memory itself, mm-hmm. uh, it just it, it cements this as such a great film for me, you know, um, and like it continues to be uh, something that I am just extremely fond of right like i've watched this yearly for more than a decade now and every time i watch it you know it it, it's a trip uh right kind of down memory lane with all the people that i've watched it with um and um you know just kind of like uh at this point in time i've kind of memorized the script like all the dialogue Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I occasionally, if I'm I'm getting up to get a drink or something, I find myself kind of mouthing along, uh, which mm-hmm. can get annoying. So I'm told. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, so this is uh, just one of my favorite films. It's definitely up there in my top ten, um, mm. and definitely one of my favorite Valentine's Day films for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely same here. You know, also like to to cap off, I I do have to say that a lot of people forget that this film had like a really great supporting cast. Elijah mm. Wood was in it. Mark Ruffalo was in it. Kristen Dunst was in it. Uh, Tom Wilkinson was in it. A lot of really good actors that you forget yeah. are not in it. Uh, although like, you know, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, and Kristen <laughs> Dunst have like a lot of memorable, very memorable scenes in it. Too. Yeah, yeah, um, they do. Yeah, um, all, all of it is really good. Even the side story of Kristen Dunst, you know, it's, yeah. it's very, uh, it's, the, it's kind of emblematic or microcosm of Joe and Clementine's story mm-hmm. uh, in, in the end. Uh, yeah, I love this film. One of my top 10, I think, romantic films of all time as well, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. A- any any other things you wanna you wanna mention about like how special it is or why people should watch it if they haven't? Oh uh, man. Before we move on. Um, I, I think Eternal Sunshine is one of those films. I uh, with John Bryan on on Music Duty. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The moment you hear the moment you hear a tune from that, like immediately you can uh, revisit the scene, right? And mm-hmm. uh, it's just one of those special things, you know. Um, sometimes like you don't always get that, um, especially in cinema these days. Uh, you know, like it's so iconic. Um, hearing some of the melodies that he's used and some of the songs that he's picked out for the soundtrack itself. Like in addition to like the movie being one of my favorite, the soundtrack is also one of my favorite. Indeed. Um, I am one of those few people who saw being John Malkovich in cinemas. Oh, man. So, so like, they yeah, one like, Charlie Kaufman fan. Yeah. Uh, or, or at least, like, towards the ground floor. I saw Adaptation in cinemas as well. Yeah. Uh, both of those films, I had to drag friends to go watch it. I, I don't think anyone uh, at that point in, I think, Primary 6 and then Sec 2 or Sec 3 <laughs> were interested in, in this kind of films. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> 
So so I tried lah. So a lot of people like didn't like them, and I had like you know just this one group of fans at that time who like I keep dragging to like art films that they don't like. Mm. Uh, and then I was like, hey, uh, Charlie Kaufman has a new movie, Ethan the Sunshine stuff. This film they liked. Yeah. And then that that blew my mind because it wasn't any less smart than his two previous films. Yeah. But it it also has an accessibility that that everyone can enjoy, which probably makes it like Charlie Kaufman's most successful film. Yeah, for sure. Easily, yeah. easily. I, yeah. I mean, like, given given everything that Kaufman has done, right? Like, he always, always kind of outdoes himself. But I don't think he will ever kind of ever kind of replicate the success that he's had with Eternal Sunshine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, all the stuff that he's done after Eternal Sunshine, right? Or even Condry for that matter. All the stuff that he's done after Eternal Sunshine never quite has been so well received you know um you don't have to be into the high concept cinema you don't have to be into indie cinema all that right eternal sunshine just becomes this movie that even if you don't want to think too deeply about it you're going to enjoy it for what it for what it is um the visuals and the music and all of that and the i think it's the emotional core of the movie that really strikes people Above and beyond all that, and if you're into the concept and you're in and 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 you you know you love what Kaufman uh, Kaufman has done, then mm-hmm. it just becomes that much more, you know. Definitely, you know. Um, for those who are new to Charlie Kaufman, like you should check out his entire discography. Uh, but I think you should watch Eternal Sunshine first. It's a yeah. very good, like you know, it's like it's like the marijuana or Charlie Kaufman, right? it's a good gateway <laughs> drug before you yeah. get into like the really really hard drugs of like Cineducky New York or or oh. I'm thinking of ending things, you know. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just kind of a side note, right? If you were yeah. to advise people to go on a Kaufman binge and they should start with Eternal Sunshine, where should they go after that? Because I think that's pretty difficult to do. Eternal Sunshine first and then you do Animalisa, the stop-motion oh, yeah, animated yeah. one. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Adaptation, which is actually, you know, clever in concept about, you know, you know Charlie Kaufman was trying to adapt The Orchid Thief and then he yeah. couldn't adapt The Orchid Thief, so he wrote about himself trying to adapt The Orchid Thief. <laughs> Clever but easy to understand, and yeah. then being John Malkovich, mm-hmm. uh, and then Sinedaki in New York, yeah. and then I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree with that for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. To to really prepare you uh, for, <laughs> for, for everything else. Yeah. Uh, I I think I went from Eternal Sunshine straight into Malkovich adaptation and then Sinedaki, if I mm. remember correctly. So like that was quite a, uh, ugh, that was that wasn't easy, um, for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, he's uh, has given any one of you uh, who wants to kind of like catch up on Kaufman. Um, that's the way to kind of go about it. Indeed, you know, um, it's it's Kaufman is only going to get more dense from now on. I don't I don't mean that as like a criticism. I I like dense Kaufman. You know, he's yeah. done the accessible parts. He's done the easy to understand ones. You know, yeah. I like him trying to add layers upon the many layers he already has. And because Charlie Kaufman right now is directing his own films, mm. he has no more like sensor there's no one there's no one to like you know balance him you know there is there isn't a spike jones or michelle gondry yeah there to, be, to be like hey how about you know we make this a bit easier to understand or we can express it a bit differently visually you know that kind of thing yeah uh yeah yeah um i both like and dislike it that charlie Kaufman is directing his own things yeah um i i, I don't think he's made a bad film yet so until he makes a misstep like tenet then uh, I'm still I'm I'm still down with him. Okay, cool. I mean, I I I don't think he will. You know, I'm I'm really hoping he won't um, have a misstep like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, both big fans of Charlie Kaufman, Eternal Sunshine, one of our favorite Valentine's Day movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, very very quotable. As um, any of you who have watched it or are going to watch it will find. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, next up, let's talk about a 2017 uh, romantic comedy film directed by Michael Showalter and written by Emily V. Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani, mm. who at that time uh, was coming off um, a pretty prominent role in a, in a HBO show called Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, since then, Kumail Nanjiani has become one of the, one of the bigger movie stars, uh, definitely one of the biggest Indian movie stars in uh, in in Hollywood, um, but at, at that time he wasn't quite so well known. Yeah. So um, this story about uh, Kumail and his wife Emily, uh, it's a real story, a, a true story, uh, based on the real life romance, uh, and it follows kind of this inter ethnic couple who must deal with um, cultural differences after Emily, who in the film is played by Zoe Kazan, uh, becomes ill. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I hadn't seen at its at that timeline, twenty seventeen. I hadn't seen a really great rom com yeah. since maybe like you know the like the the Mac Ryan days you know, <laughs> when Harry met Sally days. Yeah, it's been it's been like about twenty years of like a lot of like you know kind of like mad Jennifer, yeah. Jennifer Garner kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> like like not not bad. They were, they were okay, but just nothing this special. Uh. Yeah, and and certainly nothing this with, with this kind of specificity. Uh, which added like a different kind of uh, of angle to approach the romantic comedy uh, through through a kind of a second generation immigrant story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it remind, reminded me a lot of Master of None also. Uh. Yeah. Um, and this movie stands out to me always. I haven't rewatched it recently, but it always stands out to me always because it has. I remember it eliciting the biggest the biggest laugh I've ever had in the cinema. Oh really? Yeah. There's this one scene that. That I could not control my laughter. It was the it was, I don't want to spoil the joke, but I definitely <laughs> see that it's it's the best nine uh, eleven joke ever oh. on on film. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah, let's not spoil that. But uh, yeah, I totally yeah. agree with you. Phenomenal punchline, best nine eleven joke I've ever seen. Um, you know, a lot of people might say it's it's too early to joke about it, but no, this joke proves that it's not. It was a really funny joke. Um, you you watched it for the first time recently. What yes. do you think? Oh, I mean, it's such a cute movie. Uh, and I mean, on, on top of that, right? Like, just the chemistry between uh, Kumail and... Oh, no, what's the actress's name? Uh, Zoe Kazan, who plays uh, his real-life wife, Emily. Yeah, I mean, um, really, really solid um, acting overall. I think, like, Kumail playing himself or whatever he sees himself to be um, mm-hmm. was really solid. Uh, I mean, like, for me, uh, I discovered Kumail through his stand-up routines. Uh, you know, just one of those things where you see it on Comedy Central or you're just kind of like scrolling around. I um, always thought it was funny, guys. So when you recommend The Big Sick uh, and I went to check it out, I was surprised to see that it was um, uh, it, was, it was him, first of all, and it was a real-life story. Uh, mm-hmm. Because uh, clearly for some people, I think this is definitely going to remind them of, uh, oh, what is it called? Master of None? No, 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 no. The Sandra Bullock. Bill Bowman... Uh, while uh, you were sleeping, while yeah. Were sleeping. yeah, yeah, while you were sleeping, yeah. right? But this is this is while you were sleeping, but in real life, mm. um, essentially. Um, and and I thought it was, it, it, I mean, the premise of that uh, tickled me. Um, but to see, kind of see the way in which he develops a relationship with her parents, uh, and like how that kind of like furthers his um, affections for her. Uh, mm. And further enlightens him to his own um, ethnic heritage and identity and culture and his relationship with his parents uh, is incredibly well written. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that that plays out, 
uh, in such a realistic way, like with all the awkwardness and the silences and uh, silences and the miscommunications that are uh, being thrown around and and all the tension of having a loved one in a coma, mm-hmm. uh, really caught me off guard, right? Because much like Eternal Sunshine, this is such an easy watch, yeah, uh, but carries with it the weight of so many things that are so personal at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think one of one of the reasons this is one of the best rom coms in recent years mm-hmm. is that um it doesn't shy away from heavy topics or yeah. realism. Rom coms traditionally have this veneer of escapism to it, you know, escapist yeah. fantasy to mm. it, you know. Um which is what makes it a lot of comfort uh very, like comfort uh, food, you know, like fast food kind of kind of cinema. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but the big thing isn't comfort food kind of cinema because it <laughs> no. tackles, you know, illness and religion, um, the the cultural divisions and cultural struggles between generations, mm-hmm. uh, between the new and old relationships, and it faces it with a lot of authenticity and good humor. This isn't escapist fantasy yeah. primarily because it's it feels like a real story because it, it is, is a, a real, real story. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, like, you know, why why don't these topics crop up more in comedy? Probably because I think comedies kind of follow the, the you know, the dinner party rule. Like, like, don't bring up politics. Don't bring up anything too serious or anything too divisive. You know, you want yeah. something that is that is generally happy-go-lucky and everyone can enjoy, you know. But I think there's a value in being specific in, mm. in, in love stories, or in any stories, like, not just love stories, you know. Yeah. The spe- specificity makes it more universal and, and, and I'm beca- beginning to realize that like, as I watch more um, culturally specific uh, things, like, you know. Yeah. Um, Gordon and Nanjiani uh, just kind of go for it, you know. The, the pair, you know, uh, <laughs> have intense chemistry. They're, they're incredibly likable together. Mm-hmm. Very strong... Uh, and, and you invest immediately in wanting them to be together. Um, yep. Kazan especially is great at playing Emily. I, I don't know how F, the real Emily feels about that. Um, but as <laughs> you know, as as just a pure rom com is good. Yeah. As a pure comedy, it's really great. As I, yep. as I mentioned, you know. Yep. Um, at that particular time, the struggles of being, I think, Muslim mm-hmm. in 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 America at that time. Uh, was no laughing matter, and but they could make it a laughing matter because you know it's so real. <laughs> you know how how do you not laugh at it? You know, and and the, again, best nine eleven joke in the world. Yeah. Um. It also follows you know the Kumail in his struggling stand up comic phase, mm-hmm. uh, driving as an Uber driver and doing sets on stage at some comedy club in Chicago. All things he really did. Then trekking up to his parents' house in the suburbs for you know family dinners. You know he's Pakistani, <laughs> he's raised Muslim, and and he's he's not sure that he subscribes to the beliefs that that he grew up with, you know, um, very very master of none esque or, or Rami esque, and and his his parents are kind of set on finding him a wife by bringing <laughs> every single girl in their community over for dinner. You know, the, the girls arrive with headshots, uh, which you know he puts in a in a cigar box on his dresser like, when he gets home. Yeah. Uh but but you know he's he's smitten by this girl who heckles him one night at the show <laughs> Emily. They, yeah. they hook up, you know, uh, they although they, at first they both seem kind of allergic to commitment, mm-hmm. but their relationship starts to you know take on a life of its own. Like eventually they admit that they're together, um, even while Kumail keeps Emily a secret from his parents, who, yeah. who definitely won't be thrilled, uh, and, and vice versa too, you know. Um, then one day, Emily lands in hospital. She has a mysterious infection. Um, her parents come to town, and, and one of the best parts of the movie actually isn't Kumail and Emily. The, the best part of the movie is Kumail and Emily's family. Yeah. Uh, and, and huge credit has to go to supporting actors, uh, Ray Romano from Everybody Loves Raymond, Everybody Knows, and Holly Hunter, who mm. are great as Emily's parents. I really enjoyed them. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, shout out to the two of them. Like, I think this is the most surprising uh, role from Ray Romano that I've ever seen. Not that I've seen him in that much outside of Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm. Uh, but yeah, just like, you know, it, 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 it caught me a bit off guard. I mean, it's like, oh my God, there's Ray Romano. Uh, and the way that he, in particular for me, uh, the way that he interacts with Kumail mm. is, is um, surprising and heartwarming and touching. Whereas um, Kumail's uh, interaction with the mother, it takes a slightly more kind of serious, warm tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and both of them, like in concert together, is just like this amazing kind of story. Um, in unusual circumstances, uh, in special circumstances, you know, uh, yeah, that is so heartwarming and so well earned. Um, you know, I, I think the point in time when when Emily kind of wakes up and everybody uh, has to reckon with the fact that she's awake, and uh, that doesn't mean what has changed around her has changed with her. Mm. Uh, for all the characters, that particular moment in the hallway in the hospital, when 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 the parents are talking to him separately. Oh, uh, yep, that yep. that hit pretty hard, you know, uh, and it's like it's so well earned, right? Like that moment was so well earned. Um, they put in all the work that was there, all the strange beats that they had to kind of like navigate through. Um, and yeah, that just makes it a, a special film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, re- I think rarely in intergenerational comedy are parents and adult children granted equal complexity. Mm. Uh, you know, like like sometimes you you you're shown a point of view of the parents. It's like, oh, I don't understand this new generation. They're all like weird and blah blah blah. Or you know, uh, my parents don't understand me, vice versa, that type of thing, lah. But yeah. they're rarely granted equal complexity, and they're both equally enduring, and you understand where, where both uh, sets of points of views come from, lah. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, either with you know um, the the Pakistani parents or Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. Uh, we I, I think we understand the inner lives of all of them very well to the point where you know you all of them are fully fleshed out people yeah because i i again like they they are fully fleshed out people because they're based on real people um it's it's the plot that ultimately drives home the film's authentic tone you know mm-hmm. choosing to tell a story about a life-threatening long-term illness is hard enough but yeah. then structuring a romance around it is even harder especially if you're trying to keep the audience from feeling like you know you're, you're gonna pull a, a fast beat and switch at the end you know like oh it's yeah. gonna be a, a, a migo tragedy or whatever um in the big sick though i think emily's illness gives the film an excuse to bring in hunter and romano very organically mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. i think but both are familiar all of these people are actually very familiar comic actors playing dramatic parts la. yeah uh but but their faces and voices feel comforting in a sitcom way you know you, you know yeah. you know they're very good hands <laughs> very capable hands uh and and again it's the rare comedy that, that tackles heavy topics uh, you know like with kumail struggling to find a place in his own family mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it comes to his mother uh, it rings true especially for anyone who's ever tried to find their way uh, as an adult raised in a traditionalist home mm-hmm. uh, and it's especially poignant to see that experience through Kumail's eyes as a Pakistani man who's I guess American millennial lifestyle clashes with his religion mm-hmm. and the cultural traditions that he grew up with um, at that point in time there weren't too many of these stories out there you know um, of course now it's a bit different like, you, yeah. know, you got you got Master of None and Rami, Rami. as I mentioned mm-hmm. you know but but like seeing Kumail trying to reconcile those clashes by simply cop Compartmentalizing different aspects of his life, <laughs> you know, uh, it's 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 a struggle that is not unique to Muslims in America, which is also what makes it relatable. Yeah, uh, in its specificity, like by being specific, you get other people to understand 
what Kumil's position is. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and tackling all these heavy topics in a comedy, admittedly at first, right, if you're pitching it, it seems inadvisable. Yeah. Uh, but it works because we feel empathy for these characters even when they seem intransient, um, uh, unreasonable, you know, or yeah. even when they're being, you know, like, uh, difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. But we've come to see how they arrive at their conclusions. And then that's what I really loved about how fully fleshed out everyone in. Yeah. The big thing is... I, I agree. I agree. I mean, obviously because of the way the plot works, uh, the narrative works, um, I do feel like I wish we got a bit more of Emily. Um, mm. But I mean, of course you can't. <laughs> it's not possible, right? Uh, just because of the way that the story turns out. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I completely enjoyed this. Um, took me by surprise. It is definitely up there uh, with one of my favorite rom-coms of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely top ten for sure, easily. Um, and it's just so I'm I'm really excited now that uh, Nandiani is going to be um in the Eternals. Eternals, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and the whole like him getting ripped and stuff like that. That was pretty funny as well. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, before we cap off, our final film is an absolute banger of a classic. Still slaps to this day. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about the vintage film Casablanca. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the most, I think, iconic love triangles in cinematic history. Mm. Um, you were telling me off air during our last recording that this is something that you watch with your mother, right? Yeah, so uh, I was going to watch it with my mother. Um, just yeah. because, right, like, this is something, I at least for me, I thought that she would en- enjoy everything. But she was like, oh, yeah, okay, you know. Um, we didn't manage to catch it together in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, it's so interesting. I remember watching Casablanca. Oh God, I, I don't know. Uh, I I think it was a very strange early twenties uh, vintage film phase. Um, mm. And obviously, you gotta you have to watch Casablanca, right? Like it's one of the classics. You know, you kind of like have to visit that and some Hitchcock and all of that. Yeah, it, uh, it's, sh- it's shot d- during World War Two. Yeah, which which makes its story so much more. It's so it's so insane how topical it was at that time. It was shot during World War II. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. so insane. Um yeah, yeah. So in the end I didn't manage to catch up with my mom. Mm. Uh unfortunately. I just wanted to see um you know what it was like to 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 talk to her about a, a film that I mean not necessarily my mom was born in in the uh late sixties, so not necessarily from her time but closer to you know something that she might have watched when she was young mm-hmm. uh yeah so unfortunately i got no stories about that um ah, okay, but yeah, okay. still rewatching casablanca was such a trip though i have to say mm-hmm. uh it's oh. just one of those things that like in your memory it's like mm, yes casablanca you know and then all, all all the good things that people have said over the years kind of compound and and and, and um and interact with your own kind of opinion of it, but to sit down again and kind of like watch it through was a very interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've I've often called Casablanca a a romance film that is not really about the romance. No, because <laughs> uh, the romantic plotline is in service to larger themes of being against against political apathy, against yeah. complacency, against fascism. Uh, um, again, like you know, this film. 
takes place in 19, uh, it was released in 1942, takes place in the middle of World War II, you know, shot during World War II. Um, it, it focuses on, you know, this American um, expatriate played by Humphrey Bogart who must choose between his love for a woman played by Ingrid Bergman and helping her husband, uh, who is a Czech resistance leader, escape from, you know, um, uh, fascist-controlled city of Casablanca, uh, Casablanca to mm-hmm. continue to fight against the Germans. Um, it's it's a romantic love triangle that kind of tries to ha- almost soften how immensely political it was during this time. Yeah. Um, Hollywood at this time wasn't at all political, but they took a stand here. Like, they definitely did with Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the romantic love story, which has become so iconic, is kind of a Trojan horse for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not... Yeah, it, it, like romance definitely takes a backseat, right? It's just simply, you know, the the medium in which like it worms, uh, it worms what it wants to say over. Um, mm-hmm. So much of the romance that we talk about uh, takes form in the... Uh, takes place in the form of the flashbacks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's more like... I, I guess in that fact, like it's it's kind of more like before midnight, where this is post romance and and dealing with the the consequences of the romance that they had, you know, and how they dealing with what out. happened in Paris. Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, whatever happened in Paris, these are the consequences now. This is the reality of it, uh, mm-hmm. and we've got a deal, uh, and there are choices to be made. So, um, yeah, it's so uh, Ingrid Bergman. Can I just say she is gloriously illuminating in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really something. I, I I think like what was uh when we did Hitchcock recently, I was saying like the classic silver screen era actresses, man, like how do they look that amazing? You know, for that yep. time, um, just given the technology then and the fidelity of the film and all of that, mm-hmm. just like oh, mind blowing. Yeah, I mean Ingrid Bergman again, lah. You know, uh, yeah. quite quite famously very pretty, classically beautiful, lah. Mm-hmm. Is, is what people would say. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Rick and Ilsa's romance, and I think the the reason why it sticks out in people's heads, yeah. despite it being not the major plot point of the film, is is that its depiction of love is so bittersweet. You know, it's it's a depiction of sacrifice. Yeah. The the sacrifice that is necessary for love or unrequited love, you know, um of things that are more important than selfish love. Mm-hmm. Uh which is which is an interesting way to approach um romance in the 1940s, like a famously very traditionally romantic era, you know. Yeah. Um you know the the whole love triumphs all, all love triumphs overall is not the theme here. Yeah. Um, but but you know like the story is about no matter how much the, these two wish they could return to each other, mm. I think they they come to realize that while they once had Paris, they they can never truly get it back. Like their, their brief love is the idea of something, but not really something. Mm-hmm. Like however heartbreaking it may be, you know, yeah. Casablanca ad- advocates for for cherishing these you know. Moments of emotional vulnerability, uh, mm-hmm. of of uh, sp- special connection. You know, whatever your personal Paris may be. You know, mm-hmm. even going so far as to memorialize them, but but recognizing when it's better to move on. Yeah, uh, it is a refreshingly um, adult and realist view of romance mm-hmm. that is definitely unusual in classic cinema. Like, I've never absolutely. seen a romance like this in classic cinema. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, like, uh, that's where we got a lot of the tropes, right? Like that particular era of of cinema, 
Um, yeah, yeah. And then we get Casablanca, who, I mean, everyone from the people who directed it, they starred in it, the studio executives, no one really thought that Casablanca would become as big as it did, right? Mm-hmm. For a lot of them, it was just another movie, uh, you know, another slate um, of, of the movies being made at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, obviously, that was something very, very special uh, in mm-hmm. the, uh, and it spoke to the times that uh, people were living in when it was released. Um, and just simply, like, I think the act of simply taking a stance, like Hollywood taking a stance, um, made it special, right? To, and, and made it as big and as 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 well-reputed as we are, like, so many years later, 60 over years later. Mm, yeah, the, the political implications of the plot, the complexity of the love triangle, the fact that, you know, you can't really root for anyone in there, you know, mm. nobody is in the wrong. Yeah. Uh, in the love triangle, obviously the Nazis are in the wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, like, it all makes it uh, to be one of the more, um, one of the deepest films of the 40s that I've personally seen. Mm. Um, I think maybe, like, throughout the 50s things started to get a bit more cynical they started a bit rebe- they started to rebel a bit against the traditional classical romance you know, particularly with the film noir so the, mm, of the 1950s yep. uh, but for the 40s this was so far in a way unusual you know the, the varieties of moods and actions and, and suspense and comedy and drama the, the genre mashing yeah. the, the combination of you know sentiment and humor and pathos um, it's all very uh uh, more sophisticated mm-hmm. than I would expect, uh, and and certainly for an audience from the nineteen forties to expect from, uh, from a from a quote unquote romance picture of the era. La. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I, I was I was reading a bit of what Umberto Eco was I was talking about the film, mm-hmm. you know, and he was kind of like, uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase very badly, but essentially he was saying that Casablanca feels a lot more like an anthology of films than an actual film itself. Mm. Um, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that they're just all these characters together in one place, right? In, in Rick's Cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, what we see on screen is the culmination of those many anthologies um, running up against each other. Uh, and that is why it spoke to the time, right? And to the mm-hmm. audience of that time. Uh, and and that was like that was kind of mind blowing to read because like at no point in time in my in the f- first couple of times I watched it or even in this recent reviewing of it uh, did I think about it that way but I do believe there's some semblance of truth to that you know mm. uh, even like uh, the fact that so many of the cast members themselves were refugees at the point in time that they were filming mm-hmm. um, that you know um, the the tears and the emotional outpouring during the duel of the anthems was real. Um, mm. You know, like all these little, little things kind of like, uh, they, they add to that, right? In, in very invisible ways, you know, um, to how special Casablanca actually is. Like, it's so easy. Uh, it was easy for me to kind of, oh yeah, you know, Casablanca, great movie, um, you know, great product of its time. Uh, but now being more informed and I'll just kind of like reading up a little bit more and trying to understand the context in which the film was made and took place in uh, mm. really does make it a special, uh, more special for me now than it did before. Yeah, man. You know, um, I'm still currently, like, this is 2021 version of myself saying, like, I'm still very impressed with 
how the script managed to do so much, you know. Mm. It provides a moving love story, like yeah. one of the best love triangles that stands the test of time. Mm. Uh, but it's still just as strong in its pushing back against fascism, its representation of um, refugees, you yeah. know, which, you know, it's amazing how timeless the stories of refugees are. Um, and, and, and Casablanca is also about being moved past cynicism, you know. Yeah. Um, Humphrey Bogart's character is very cynical, <laughs> very apathetic at first, uh, and about standing for doing something right, even even when it's hard. You know, you can't be neutral against evil. You either fight it or you're part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's something Humphrey Bogart's character learns from it, like, and it, it gives me a, a chill. And he has to sacrifice his great love because of it to help, uh, to help the cause. Because you know, it just so happens that you know she had to be married to this great freedom fighter that you know he can't go against. <laughs> Yeah. Uh yeah, uh, great story, great movie. Um a lot of people I think I know I'm I'm sure you also have like a lot of your like film watching fans like have a averseness to watching classic films, but yeah. like a, a part of the thing with Behold is that I want to like slowly like kind of tie in a lot of older films from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, to to kind of just show that like there's a lot of great stuff in it. Lah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it has to do with like this entire idea that cinema has grown tremendously. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that is true, right? Cinema has grown tremendously in terms of, you know, the scope of what uh, people want to see, the scope of what is being made, you know, the topics and the subject matter um, that, uh, you know, is possible to talk about now and, 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 and film now as opposed mm-hmm. to what it was in the future, uh, what it was mm-hmm. in the past, right? Like, um, and, and as, uh, however more woke cinema may be today, right? Or has been. In, in the last decade, right? And however mm-hmm. more work is going to be in the future, we can't take away from the fact that we only have... Um, well, we're, that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like, there's a reason why good cinema back then stands the test of time, right? Mm. And without, you know, essentially like Casablanca taking a stand. I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's a perfect movie, right? There's plenty of things within the movie now, watching it now, that's problematic for our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hollywood taking a stand back then is a huge thing. Massive, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that in and of itself is good enough reasons for us to give it kudos, uh, specifically yeah. for Casablanca, right? And recognize it as, as you know, a product of its time, uh, but a very special product of its time on which cinema has had the privilege to build on top of as, as, as time goes by. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it pretty much kickstarted the 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 classical Hollywood movement, um, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and keep in mind that this film came out in nineteen forty-two, yeah. uh, which was barely ten years after the beginning of talking cinema. Mm. Like you know, just the transition from silent films to something of this kind of complexity and politically relevant and and moving romance and all of that. It, it, to do it over ten years, right? It kind it kind of blew my mind, la. Yeah. Like I, I can't imagine <laughs> the the transition from silent to, to talking films, and then like you know this kind of um, quantum leap forward in sophistication. Yeah. Like they, they was happening, you know. There was a lot of ground. There was a lot of breaking ground, uh, in films at that time. Like mm-hmm. it, it was happening very quickly. Every few months, you know, there was something new, something more sophisticated happening, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very cool, very fruitful period of artistic innovation in cinema. And yeah. Cas- Casablanca was at the height of it, like, especially in the 40s or the early 40s. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, so that was it, you know, for, for our favorite romance films of all time. Any, like, 
special honorable mentions of, of stuff Ooh. that you know you, you you would have loved to talk about but we didn't have time to cover uh, no nothing comes to mind at the moment I think uh, I would definitely say oh I'm just going to take a moment to say it right uh, mm. guys 500 Days of Summer is a, it's a terrible <laughs> romantic movie um, yes let's let's just get it out there I mean we've referenced it once or twice um, mm-hmm. where, um, but we just want to I just want to make it clear that I really don't like 500 Days of Summer it's a horrible film Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So, like, on the uh, on the converse side of things, right? Like, uh, we've talked about some of our favorite five hundred days of summer is not one of them, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um. But yeah, I I think there'll be plenty more opportunity for us to kind of do um you know romance films. Of course, um, of course, you know. Well, I mean, I think it would have been cool. Like, you got mail. Yep. Uh, is definitely one of those that I hope we talk about in the future because you know mm-hmm. one of my favorite rom coms. Mm-hmm. Um, when Harry met Sally, I think that's a classic yeah. um, that we could talk about as well. But those aren't necessarily, I think, in the same tier as as you know um, the ones that we talked about today. Um, I, I I would agree with that. You know, although you know you've got me on a when Harry met Sally is definitely top tier rom coms. Yeah. I think. Um, and and of course, you know, this is we could just do a Meg Ryan thing, uh, That's true. I do say that like I wanted to bring up some of the more like LGBT stuff, but I, we have already talked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which oh, I actually yeah. wanted to include here, but then I remember that we had already We've covered already it. So it. Mm-hmm. uh so go listen to that Portrait of a Lady on Fire review if you haven't. Uh, it was oh, on the Pico podcast. It's, so good. it's on our archives, you know, back on our mix cloud. So go listen to it. Um, more recently, I was really into, um, you know, um, this love story with a fishman called uh, The Shade of Water, oh. uh, which won an Oscar for it. Yeah. Uh, and Further Back, Singing the Rain is a really great love story. Call Me By Your Name is a really good, great love story. Um, lots of really good stuff. La. Um, I'm almost hesitant to bring up Woody Allen because, you know. <sighs> yeah, but in, in that same on in that same vein, like talking about Call Me By Your Name right now, it's a bit problematic as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean I wanted to mention like Annie Hall as well, but that's Woody Allen, so a mm, bit, uh, yeah. prob- problematic, but you know, inarguably a, a great film. Gone yep. with the Wind, also very problematic, but also a great film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gone yeah. Yeah. It, it is. Um her. I wanted to say her also, you know. Um, oh yeah, her definitely uh, ranked up there. Yeah, if if I want to include a love story with an AI, her will be up there. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, and of course, you know, they've got classics like Beauty and the Beast and stuff like that are already great, you know? Yeah. Um, Dances with Wolves, maybe. Yeah, I yeah. haven't seen Dances with Wolves in so long. Oh, yeah, it's been ages, but that always kind of like sticks out to me. And I only just thought of it, actually. Mm. Huh. I, I, I mean, I, I, I did more recently rewatch Avatar, so it's pretty much the same thing, right? Yeah, it is exactly the same story, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, just that we don't have to stare at blue people and we've got young Brad Pitt. So. Mm. Um. Yeah. Um. Interesting. I mean, like a lot of stuff to talk about. Maybe we should do another episode uh, about uh, a different period of romance movies. Mm. Um. You know. Uh. And not necessarily have to wait till till Valentine's Day next year. Well, we'll see how it goes. Definitely, man. Yeah. Uh. All these movies, all available on some streaming platform somewhere. I'm sure you can find them. All. Yeah. You know. Obviously, they're all available on VOD. I personally have a uh, Blu-rays for all of them. Um. So yeah. I don't need to download anything. I, I still have my DVD player. I believe Big Sick is available on Amazon. Uh, yes, Big right? Sick. Is, 
It's an Amazon production, yeah. so yeah, definitely available on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the rest of them, I've got, uh, I've got Eternal Sunshine on VCD. Mm. Uh, I have the first two movies of the Before Trilogy on VCD as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is strange because I don't actually have a VCD player anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I don't have a VCR anymore. I still have my Before Sunrise VHS in my cupboard. Damn, damn! You should hold on to those. Uh, who knows? I was looking at it the other day, right? It had like weird company. Like my Before Sunrise VHS was next to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two. And I can't I can't believe like of all the two movies I I kept from the VHS era, yeah. it was those two movies. <laughs> that is that is fairly bizarre. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Really? You think really? That they... Yeah, really? Ninja... Oh my god. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the one with the ninja rap by Vanilla Ice. Oh my god, that's crazy. We should, yeah, yeah. we should do, <laughs> do an episode about that. See, the thing, the thing is, right, I used to, I mean, don't, like, I used to really love the ninja rap, like, super yeah. love it. Point, <laughs> I would rewind and watch it all the time. So when I took out the BHS, I saw they had rewound to a specific point. Oh if my I had God. a ninja player, I'm willing to bet, like, a hundred bucks, right, that it will be at the beginning of the ninja rap. Okay, so the last time, whenever this was, right, God mm. knows when, the last yeah. time you watched it, you made what? sure to rewind it to the beginning of the ninja rap. And then, never, and then put yeah, it never, away forever. I've never re every time I only watch that movie to watch the ninja rap. That's yeah. all. I've never, <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen the movie back to front since I was a child. But I always rewatch the ninja rap, so I watch the ninja rap and then like oh, rewind back God. in case I want to watch it again. Though. So yeah. I remember that being like a, a thing. I would like go home from school, put on ninja rap, like get a bit hype, and then rewind it back to the beginning and put it back, you know, so I can watch it again. <laughs> that is amazing. I, I'm half tempted to try and source for a VCR player now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Oh, uh, but but I recently bought the Criterion DVDs uh, for, for not recently, uh, this was like four years ago, but oh. I bought the Criterion DVDs for the Before Trilogy. Uh, oh, nice. Because I love the covers for it. Yeah, yeah, amazing, yeah. Uh, amazing covers. Criterion always puts out good stuff, so. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh it's always a worthwhile investment, I guess. Like it's easy for us to kind of forget, uh, with how accessible media is these days. Uh, but yeah. you know, once in a while, when something's worth keeping, you just you know. Yeah, because Criterion has those like written like forwards from other mm-hmm. directors mm-hmm. talking about why they love the film, etc. You know, recently I think uh Martin Scorsese did the forward for uh, Hereditary. You know, things like that, like special yep. special things that you can't find when you torrent something for example you know yeah um exactly. next week we'll be back with a new episode of behold uh where we talk about uh our favorite chinese language films yeah uh, to celebrate chinese new year and we have a bit of crossover with valentine's day because our main topic is in the mood for love by <laughs> yeah uh which can fulfill you know both things mm-hmm. uh as well as uh, the 2019 film by lulu wang called the farewell yeah uh which you know received a lot of oscar buzz at that time uh alongside you know, actually all three of these films received oscar buzz <laughs> uh crouching tiger hidden dragon i think was ang lee's big breakout thing yep. in America. Mm-hmm. Um, can't wait to talk about that. I haven't seen that in a long time. Recently yeah. rewatched it. Forgot how good it was. Yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, same thing. Recently rewatched it. Just like it 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 sits in the back of your mind. It's like a wow moment in 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 cinema. Uh yeah. but like revisiting it and I feel like a lot of I've been saying this a lot, revisiting some of these old films, older films mm. rather, has been a trip, man. I've been enjoying it so much just because, you know, uh cinema means something different to me now. Uh, mm. than he did before 
So, uh, yeah, super, super uh, looking forward to talking about those three. Uh, yep. In particular, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and In the Move for Love, some of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Uh, the Farewell, which I recently just caught up with, is fantastic. Mm, Aquafina uh, in a rare dramatic Oh, role. wow. And, you know, I'm not at all familiar with Aquafina's work outside of the few comedies that she's done. Yeah, like Ocean's... What was it? Ocean's 12? Ocean's 8. Ocean's 8. She was in Ocean's 8, right? Was it 8? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, she was the, in Ocean's the 8. One. Uh, the Algo yeah. one. She did, like, the... The rock, some rock thing recently. Yeah, yeah. She, she's always like Jumanji. Loud... Yeah, the, Jumanji. The new yeah. Jumanji thing. But damn, she's got jump chops. I, I'm, I'm, I'm super, super impressed. But we'll get into that uh, next week. Definitely, yeah. And and Ang, Ang Lee reminded me of Robert Martin, also one of the great uh, romantic movies of of the of the twenty first century. Oh yeah, man. Oh, that's a huge list. That's a whole different like episode, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe during uh. El- like you know, the Pride, I forgot Pride what week? Pride week, yeah, yeah, which do. is in June. Yeah, let's do uh, LGBT romances. Lah. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I think Pride week will be a good way to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and yeah, we'll be back next week. Till then, this has been Hit Zero. This is Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.